Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Our Old Testament reading is going to come from Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll read this as providing a little context for our sermon passage, which is actually in Hebrews 10. So in a moment, we'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. But first, let's read from Habakkuk chapter 2. I'll read just verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk's story, even if you have never read it or heard about it, is a familiar one. By that I mean it's something we experience as Christians. Habakkuk at the beginning is overwhelmed by the sin and misery he finds in the world. And he says to God, this doesn't make sense. Your your people are, are just, they're going crazy. They're so full of sin and selfishness and it doesn't make sense. What's going on? And God says, oh, oh, I'll tell you Habakkuk. Here's what I'm doing. I'm letting them fall into this trouble because I'm going to bring in the Babylonians to oppress them and exile them. And like us, Habakkuk says, time out, that's a bad plan. God, I I don't like your idea. And this is where we pick up. Where Habakkuk in chapter 2 says these words. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. And watch to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet to for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Amen. Notice first that Habakkuk takes it upon himself to position himself to receive an answer from God. He doesn't like God's idea of sending in the Babylonians to conquer Judah and send them into exile. And so he goes up on the rampart. He goes up to take his watch. Are the Babylonians actually coming? Is that actually God's plan? And notice what he puts in verse 1. That I may see his answer when I am corrected. He's presuming fault. He knows that if God has a plan and I don't like it, the problem isn't with God or his plan. It's with me. And notice then what is the correction For Habakkuk. In verse 2, the Lord answers and says, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets. That is, write down what I have to say, record it for posterity, that anyone who reads the book of Habakkuk may be able to run. This is a book that is intended to bring about an energy, an enthusiasm, and a vigor in the life of the faithful. How does it do that? Verse 3. The vision is for an appointed time. It motivates us to get up and to run in obedience to God because we know that he has fixed the appointed time. It will surely come, just not when we wanted it to. 
It has an appointed time. In the end it will speak, it will not lie, it tarries, but wait for it, it shall surely come, it will not tarry. It does tarry, but it will not tarry. This is that great theological phrase we come across in the New Testament, the already, but the not yet. It, it doesn't take forever, it, it will come quickly. Now 2,000 years, you know, quickly, you know, quickly. It has come, but it is yet coming. And so there is an exercise of faith that is expected. And so it is in verse 4. Behold the proud. The one who is not willing to wait. Behold the proud. The one who will not endure the Babylonian captivity. Who will not submit to the plan of God. He is not upright. He will not grow straight and tall. He will flop over. He will be cut down. But the just shall live by faith. But we endure Babylonian captivity. But we endure the sin and suffering of this life by faith. With that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Our sermon is from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Now read through verse 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. We're picking up here at the very end of the chapter, about to transition into the famous chapter 11, that hall of faith, as it has sometimes been called. In chapter 12, it will be called a great cloud of witnesses. But here, before we begin, let's look at Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. Here again, the word of the Lord. But recall the former days in which After you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen and amen. I don't know if you've realized this, but maple trees are a gift from God. I realized this as a little boy growing up on a farm where we made maple syrup every March. And when I would get off the school bus and see a billow of white cloud rising from the black trees, wreathed in white snow, I thought to myself, maple trees are a gift from God. For from them comes maple syrup. When I grew up, I realized that they would also leaf out in this full, vibrant green 
And they were beautiful in the spring. And in the heat of summer, you could sit beneath that shade and be kept cool in the beauty of its shadow. And in the autumn, they turn a radiant red, an orange and a yellow. There's a glorious array of color to the maple tree leaves. And even in winter, they have that thin outline of black like a charcoal sketch when it's settled into a white canvas of snow. These trees produce tasty maple syrup. They are a gift from God. These trees are beautiful all year round. They are a gift from God. And when I became a pastor, I realized there's a third way in which maple trees are a gift from God. The seed pods fall to the ground and lay on the surface until a deep freeze comes. And the little bit of moisture that is inside that seed pod, after two, three, four days of a deep, cold, frozen air, hardens into ice, expands, cracks open, and the seed sinks into the soil. And in this way, the maple tree becomes a beautiful illustration of how faith works in our life. That the word of God, read, sung, preached, taught, rests on the surface of our soul until winter comes. And a deep freeze grips us. Guilt, shame, misery, sorrow. And it craps open the husk and that life-giving gospel sinks into our hearts and takes root you see the good news for us this morning is that suffering sends us back to Jesus whenever we suffer it is a gift from God to send us back to Jesus so that we would cultivate faith beloved Suffering sends us back to Jesus. So cultivate your faith. Let's do that this morning. Let's look at the text. And notice in verse 32, we are told to recall, that is remember, the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. To the original audience, this is a familiar memory. Many of them are still experiencing the great struggle and the sufferings that came when they were first illuminated. The Hebrews of the first century had a hard time jumping from Judaism to Christianity. Often it meant being expelled from the synagogue, which meant no community, which meant no fellowship, which meant no more festivals or holidays, which meant no more family. Often it meant being alienated and estranged from those who had brought you up, who had loved you and cared for you in your youth. They had great struggle with many sufferings. And the Holy Spirit here tells them, remember it. Bring those stories back to mind. That when you first had the light of Christ shown in you, you were surrounded by darkness and the pain of persecution. This text is immediately applicable to so many Christians. And we can see how it is important for many Christians to spend their life of faith looking back 
and remembering. Remembering the great costs they were willing to pay when they were baptized. And separated from that life of unbelief. And that family that was antagonistic to God. It is an awful business. Being identified with Christ and His church. There can be great struggles and sufferings. And we should remember that. We should bring it to mind and tell those stories to one another. We should read the biographies of our brothers and sisters. Who suffer much to be called Christian. We should read the histories and stories of our fathers. Who suffered much in order to be called Christian. But what about us who don't have it as a personal story? I think we too should remember those former days when we were first illuminated. We should remember those times and seasons when Jesus first worked saving faith in us, even if there wasn't a great struggle with great persecution. Because I suspect that if most of us look back, most of us do have a story. I'm inclined to be a little bold since I'm in the pulpit. All of us, if we look at it correctly actually do have a story of great struggle with great suffering. Because following Jesus isn't easy. It's taking up a cross and denying ourselves. Beloved, we should look upon our story and remember what struggle we have had to overcome our selfishness. It's not been easy, has it? We should look at our own story and say... What a struggle with sin. It's so constantly with me. And here I am, 40 years in the faith, wishing that I was more mature than I am. Wishing I was more wise than I am. It's been a great struggle with many sufferings, and I've I've not progressed as I wished. Yes, let us revisit our stories. Let us look at the story of what has God done for me? What is God doing in my life? Let's tell the stories of our brothers and sisters and our fathers of old. And let's have the stories of salvation circulating through the conversations of our church. But of course, let us also tell the stories most of all. Not only of how I was illuminated. But not only how you were illuminated. But of how this world was illuminated. Do you recall the stories, the struggles that accompanied the coming of the Christ? Who shone as light in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome him, but it sure has tried. These are stories we need. These are stories that saturate the soil of our faith. So that our roots go down deep into the grace of God. So that our roots spread out far and wide into the love of God. So that we can fulfill the promise and prayer of the Apostle Paul. That we should search out what is the height and breadth and depth of the love of God in Christ. One of the ways to seek out the perimeter of the gospel. To seek out those extreme edges that... I warn you in advance, cannot be found, of the grace and goodness of God is to recall your story, 
How has light come to me? It's to hear the stories of others. How has light come to you? And most of all, to hear the story of Jesus Christ. How has light come into the dark world? We need to tell each other these stories. We need to weave them into our conversations, our daily life. This is what midweeks are for. This is what tonight's prayer meeting is for. This is what our Sabbath school is for. This is why we have this structure to our congregational life. So that there is opportunity for us to sit and say, here's the story of what the light of Christ is doing in me this week. So that I can listen. Here's the story of what the light of Christ is doing in you this week. So that we can tell each other the story of what the light of Christ is doing in this world. Since he first came until he will come again. Let us tell the stories of salvation. Let us remember them and share them with one another. How with great struggle and with many sufferings the light is in fact overcoming the darkness. We need those stories, don't we? For we live in a dark world. Now, these stories that we are to share, stories of light, stories in which light penetrates and overcomes darkness, are both public and communal. We see this in verse 33. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. See, by pulling together those personal stories of salvation, we make public, we make a spectacle of those reproaches and tribulations which we have endured for the sake of Christ. We give witness and testimony to the power of grace. We say, I know this gospel is true because I've personally experienced it. But of what value is that story if I don't tell it to anyone? I must make a spectacle of myself in order to reveal the goodness and grace of God in like manner. Unless we tell stories of the Christian church, of our history, of our fathers, of our siblings the world over. How else do we make a spectacle of the great grace that there is for those reproached and those in tribulation? Do we not rejoice in the stories of the persecuted church and their faithfulness unto death? Do we not make a spectacle then of our sufferings and of theirs as a way to testify to the truth? God is good. In like manner, we become companions with those who are so treated. Not only should this become a public story, this is why we had just a few weeks ago someone come forward and publicly profess faith. Because this gospel religion is not a private thing. Not a secret faith we hide within us. We publicly profess his faith. When we take the supper, we proclaim, publish, make for, for everyone his death until he comes again. In this way, we are also communal. The stories move among us and we become companions of those who are so treated. We become partners with those who have suffered. As their story becomes our story. 
As they tell stories and we tell their stories, and these stories of, of salvation circulate in order that others might hear and know and believe. We become their partners, celebrating what they have endured for the salvation of God's people. Do we not remember these sweet stories? And do we tell them? How much more the stories of Jesus Christ. That he coming into the world. Not only had great struggle with many sufferings. Endured tremendous humiliation. For our salvation. We become his companion. This is the cost of discipleship. As Bonhoeffer said. For when Christ calls a man he bid him die. Jesus says to us, be my companion, be my partner and co-laborer, suffering with me in these stories, that we together with great struggles and many sufferings should bring about the illuminating of the world, for the light shall overcome the dark. Now by telling these stories one to another, and by telling these stories to the world, by finding our identity in them. And to say that Jesus story. That's not just a myth. That's not just a legend. That's not just some piece of a literary artifact. For critics and scholars to tear apart. That's my story. That's who I am. That man on that cross. That man in that tomb. That baby in the manger. That healer of the blind and the sick. And the raiser of the dead. Those stories in Matthew's gospel, those teachings that are interspersed with those stories, that's who I am. I find my worth in them. I find my identity in them. And so do we. And my story is just the next paragraph in that page. That who Christ is, is who I am becoming I have become a companion of Christ in this story of suffering and struggle for the salvation of the world. And so thirdly, in verse 34, we are told that the sacrifices we engage grow up out of these stories. For you had compassion on me, says the author, in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. We don't know who this me is. You had compassion on me. For much of church history, they thought it was the Apostle Paul. And it is certainly very consistent with his experience, was it not? We know from the letter to the Philippians, we know from the letter to the Colossians, that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. And when he was there in his chains, those churches gathered up gifts. And sent them with Epaphroditus to Rome to pay Paul's prison bills. Perhaps that's what's referred to here. Perhaps it's not the Apostle Paul who wrote this. We don't know. What is very interesting is that for nine and a half chapters, the author, who is anonymous, has been at pains to blame all of Scripture on the Holy Spirit. And so the only me that we can say with certainty here is Christ. 
That it is Christ who says, You had compassion on me when in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. But, but we would say, would we not, with the disciples in Matthew 25, Jesus, when were you ever in chains? But what does Jesus say? When you did it for the least of my brothers, you did it for me. Yes? What does Jesus say with his resurrected glory blinding Saul the persecutor? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, who was imprisoning Christians, was was persecuting the Christ. This is the meaning of our text then. You, beloved, have heard these stories of how God became flesh and dwelt among us. And how he, with great struggle and many sufferings, saved us from Satan and from sin. And how, through faith, has made us sharers in that spectacle of salvation and companions in that great grace so that we would willingly be identified with the body of Christ and joyfully accept the plundering of our goods, which in this case is the free gift of all our earthly wealth for the well-being of one another. The Acts chapter 2 vision of koinonia, fellowship. That we so love one another, we call nothing our own. If you have a need, I have a resource. And together, we'll have no needs among us. This is the growth of the vision of faith. That by telling these stories one to another, we are bound together in this covenant of love so that we have compassion on the Christ and we meet the needs of one another, joyfully allowing the Roman persecutor to plunder us for the well-being of the kingdom, knowing that something better and more enduring, a possession awaits us in heaven, a possession that is Christ. These stories return us to the truth I have a Jesus in heaven. He is that better possession. He is that enduring possession. And I am content to wait him. And I am content to lose all for him. This was the attitude of our fathers in this day. These Hebrews who heard this Holy Spirit were driven by such faith to say, this world is not mine. This wealth is not mine. This welfare is not mine. And for the sake of the kingdom, I'll release it all. Because I'm waiting for the king himself. I want him far more than his treasure. This is faith. That these stories should circulate among us. To the focusing of our eyes on Christ. To the full satisfaction of I have Christ and no other. And so he says, finally, in verse 35, I don't mean finally as in the sermon's almost over. I mean in this first section of keeping up faith. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Do not cast away your confidence. Do not throw away your faith. Do not take up those stories of how light is working in you an identification with Christ To the saving of your souls. Do not take up that story and 
say, oh, that's nice. I'll put that in the scrapbook and forget it. Do not take the stories of your brothers and sisters. Do not take the stories of your fathers. By the way, guess what's coming in chapter 11? Stories of all the fathers who had faith. Where we don't take those stories and bottle them up and cast them into the corner and forget. Do not cast away your confidence. Do not throw away the stories that make for faith. That draw our faith deep into the soil of grace and love. No, remain rooted in those stories. Return to Christ and the story of Christ at work in you. Return to the story of Christ at work in the church, Christ at work in the world, for it has great reward. Suffering, whether it is sin that we have caused our sufferings or the suffering that we experience of the sins of this world, suffering sends us back to those stories. The stories of what is happening in our life. But even when we can't make sense of that one, the stories of what is happening in the lives of our loved ones. And even when we can't make sense of that one, the stories of what has happened in the life of Christ. By accumulating and sharing and circulating those stories of salvation, we have created for us a confidence. And we renew and cultivate in us a confidence that has a great reward. In this way, I do mean finally. Finally, there are two rewards. Let us look at the two rewards. The first great reward is in verse 36 through 38. You have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In verse 36, the Holy Spirit warns us we need endurance. That is that first great reward. That if we circulate stories of salvation about one another, identifying ourselves with the work and person of Christ and say, that's who I am and that's what I'm becoming, then we will endure in that faith. That faith grows deep. That faith grows wide. That faith grows strong through these stories. And we have need of this endurance. We're told why in verse 38. For if anyone draws back, that is, if anyone ceases to endure, if anyone fails to remain, my soul has no pleasure in him. You see, that faith that does not endure from rebirth to resurrection was not real faith. And there is no pleasing God without faith. Faith is the essential instrument or ingredient by which we please God. By which we are truly united to Christ. And a recipient of His righteousness. Robed in His holiness. Forgiven in His death. And so without a faith which is proven true by its endurance. We cannot please God. We are yet dead in our trespasses and sins. So circulate the stories. So return to the truths of Jesus Christ, of who He is and what He's done, who He is and what He's doing in your life. 
and in the life of one another, that we might endure until the receiving of the promise. The Holy Spirit here quotes from Habakkuk, but quotes is, is a far too strong of a verb. He doesn't quote. At best, he paraphrases. Now, there's a little bit of variation because he's actually using Greek Habakkuk instead of Hebrew Habakkuk. But there's also a lot of variation because the Holy Spirit is taking Habakkuk chapter 2 and saying, that was Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is saying, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. You see, the hope of Habakkuk wasn't simply that the Babylonians would be God's answer to the sin of the people. The hope of Habakkuk wasn't that they would just survive the Babylonian captivity. The hope of Habakkuk was that God was coming in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The hope of Habakkuk was that God was coming to die on the cross for the sins of his people. The hope of Habakkuk was yet a little while and we will have Jesus. And so it is true for us, friends. We circulate these stories to awaken faith in us, to awaken hope in us, because yet a little while and we will have Jesus. Now for some of you, it's a little while more than for some of us. Some of us, a little while is a little shorter than the others. And we don't know which. But for all of us, yet a little while, and we will see Jesus. This is how the story gives us endurance. Jesus is alive. Jesus is at work. See what he's done to me. See what he's done to you. See what he's done in the history of the world. And yet a little while, and I will not only see his work, I will see him. This is how we work faith and strengthen it in one another. The second great reward of sharing these stories one with another, of rooting our faith in a return to the stories of salvation, of remembering and recalling how light came into the darkness, and of how there was great struggle and suffering is that in verse 39, we are not those of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Notice the emphasis in the reading. We are of those. There are two types of humans. Only two. Of those who draw back to perdition. And of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Those who draw back. Those who do not endure in that childlike trust in God. Those who have a character by which their faith does not endure. But those who believe to the uttermost. Those who are of such character that their faith is something that is strong. And enduring to the saving of their souls. This is a great reward if we do not cast away our confidence. But if we return continually to the stories of salvation. 
Jesus gives us the illustration of this principle. He warns us that some of us have hearts like a well-trod path. Have you ever seen a dirt path after spring rain? Have you seen it in the heat of summer? When all that mud that was churned up in the spring is packed down flat and firm and hard under the heat of the summer sun. And when the seed of the gospel lands on it, what does it do? It just sits there. Here is Christ. Here is grace. Will that truth just sit on the surface of your soul and sit and sit awaiting Satan to snatch it away? Jesus says there are also hearts in which there are large rocks and boulders and little pockets of dirt. And some of the seed will fall into those little pockets of dirt and little roots will go into that soil and it'll spring up that faith, it'll grow, but the heat of the sun, it'll parch that little pocket of soil and there's no moisture or nutrient in it, and the faith will wither and die. Friends, here's Christ. Here's the stories of Christ and his salvation. Will you just store it in a little pocket of your heart? Will you just hide it in a little corner of your soul? Until it withers away entirely. But then Jesus says there are those hearts in which there are weeds and thorns and thistles and briars. The worries and cares of this world. The job and the work and the kids and the marriage and the money. And all the headaches from day to day. And he says they come and they hear the word and here's Jesus. Here's the story of salvation. Here's the song of grace and they hear it and, it and it sinks into that soil and it's throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, choked out by the world until it withers and dies. And we are called in our text to a life of faith, hope, and love. To be like a maple tree beside a stream of living water in which the winter storms of this world crack open the husks of our faith so that the roots go deep into the stories of grace and return again and again and again to the promises of God that those roots would be deep and strong and broad, growing up into a straight, sturdy hope that reaches to the heavens itself Branching out into love and good works. To service to one another. Indeed to the saving of our souls. Is this the heart that we have? Well cultivated soil. Well full of nutrients. Stories of salvation. For this is the good news for us today. That next week, 
as we begin to launch into stories of salvation, may we find a climaxing faith that grows with the story's telling. Beloved, suffering returns us to Jesus. So cultivate faith. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. And we thank you for the great truths of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the story that is of old. That first and greatest story of Jesus Christ. Which is true and lasting and changing. We give you thanks that the story of the church has been woven into that story. That we should know the history of our people. And your work in us and among us. And we give you thanks for our story. Each one. That we have been grafted into this great tale of salvation. And have experienced for ourselves that which you have done from the foundation of the world. Shining light into darkness. The you who said from the very beginning let there be light. Has caused that same light even Jesus Christ to shine in us today. Father give us the faith. To receive this word that has been preached. And to respond with obedience and joy and love to the praise of your name. For in that name we pray. Amen.